get an Italian view of what it's like to be Italian. If it's too quiet, we get we, we worry. No, yes, we love being with other people, and if they're a little noisy, even better. Explore the charming smaller towns of the Czech Republic beyond the golden spires of the capital. Prague's a great city, but it's a big city, pretty intense. The nice thing about Chesky Krimov is it's just very relaxing. Trebich is a charming heritage site. It's a very nice small town, and they have an incredibly beautiful cathedral and also a beautifully preserved Jewish ghetto. And connect with the people in small-town Indonesia, scattered across some 13,000 far-flung islands. I've stayed in villages where the whole village all come in to watch me have my breakfast. An Italian view of life's important lessons, historic towns beyond Prague, and wander across Indonesia. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. The pandemic gave Beppe Severnini time to think about the distinct ways people in Italy look at life and one another. He shares a few of those insights in just a bit. And we'll look into visiting the charming smaller cities of the Czech Republic. Let's open today's Travel with Rick Steves on the other side of the world in Indonesia with journalist Elizabeth Pisani. For over three decades, she's looked into its crowded cities and remote backwaters as an epidemiologist and to see what unites it, as she puts it, into an improbable nation. She writes about her encounters in Indonesia, etc. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you for having me. Elizabeth, when you think about Indonesia, you think of, at least I think of, the clichés. You know, shadow puppets, gamelan music, batik uh, fabrics. Uh, do we find that when we travel in, in Indonesia still to this day? Funny you should say that, because every single one of those clichés that you've pulled out there describes Java. And Java is one out of 13,500 and some islands. It's one of the larger ones. It's the sixth largest island. But it's only 7% of the total land mass. Now, it squeezes in two-thirds of all of the nation's people, and that makes it culturally quite dominant. But in fact, there's a lot of very, very, very different things going on in different parts of the country. Now, I've lived in and out of Indonesia for 25 years. And when I went back with the prospect of trying to sum it all up and write a book about it, I decided that I was going to do a great counterclockwise circle around the country and not actually go to Java until last. And I Hmm. did that deliberately because I wanted to sort of not be, in a way, infected by those dominant images, those cliched images. And I spent, I suppose, a year before I got to Java on cargo boats and motorbikes and, you know, buses with chickens on my lap and all of this And in all of that time, I never came across Wayang puppets, the shadow puppets once. No one ever mentioned them. And I thought, well, maybe this is also a sign of the times. Maybe those things, you know, in the internet age, in the television age, Indonesians are huge Facebook fans. Jakarta tweets more than any city on the planet. They're quite plugged into modern culture. Maybe all of that Um, shadow puppets and it's just a thing of the past. And then I got to Java Hmm. and it's not at all a thing of the past. It's still very dominant there as a set of images. People tell jokes about politicians that compare them to figures from the shadow puppets from the Wayang plays and etc. So it's funny how many of our dominant images as, as foreigners of Indonesia come just from that one island. 
Elizabeth, it is interesting when you travel, especially around the developing world, how the modern age has overtaken the big cities, but a lot of the traditions and the vivid diversity survives just as beautifully as ever in the far reaches of those countries. One of my most vivid memories of being in Indonesia, Java specifically, is taking the the cattle car train from Jakarta down to Bandung. And I was at least a head taller than everybody on the car. It was standing room only, and it was like as many people physically as you could fit into those train cars. And when people realized there was a tall, blonde guy from the United States on the train, everybody had to flow by me just to check me out and see who was on this train. Would you still have that kind of adventure when you when you get off the beaten path in a place like Java? Yes, and, and much, much more so when you get off the beaten path in other islands. So I am not tall and I am not blonde. I'm actually, after a couple of months on the road, I get almost Indonesian looking, I'm short and rather dark. But even then, just your habits are a source of great excitement to people. So I've stayed in villages where the whole village, bar none, grannies, aunties, six-year-olds, babies, all come in to watch me have my breakfast. Hmm. And the thing that's of interest is that I'm drinking empty coffee, kopi kosong, empty coffee, which means coffee with no sugar. No one can believe it. So everyone <laughs> has to come coffee. and have it. How could you? Exactly. Everyone comes to watch and you think, oh, my 6 a.m. is not my best time of day. <laughs> um, what I like about your book is you talk not about the famous sites. There's, you know, Jogjakarta and a few things you got to do. But basically, it's getting into the culture. You talk about sticky culture. What do you mean by sticky culture? It's a phrase that comes from Indonesian itself. They they use that word kental, which means sticky in the way that syrup, when it's been boiled down, is is sticky. You you get sucked into it, but in an an embracing sort of way. And I think that there's really a tension at the moment between old cultural traditions and the modern world, because a lot of the cultural traditions are really quite limiting for people. If your grandmother dies in some parts of the country, or your husband or your daughter or whatever, you have to have a funeral that will lead to the slaughter of several dozen animals, each of which costs you, you know, the equivalent of half a year's salary. And so people have to drop out of school. People have to give up opportunities for starting a new business or investing because they have a cultural obligation to slaughter buffalo for the funeral. So there are really good things about the sticky cultures. They, they mm-hmm. maintain a sense of community. There's a very, very strong sense of helping one another. No one ever falls through the cracks. But there's a downside to that too. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Pisani has reported from China, India, and Southeast Asia. She's also trained as an epidemiologist, consulted governments on health policy, and hosted a TED Talk on global HIV prevention strategies. She joins us today from the Travel with Rick Steves archives. Elizabeth writes about her years of island hopping in what she calls the improbable nation of Indonesia. Her book is Indonesia, etc. You can read her postings from the early months of the COVID pandemic in Indonesia at indonesiaetc.com. Elizabeth, when you're thinking about Indonesia, to me, it's the people that really you come home with memories of, vivid memories of. You you call them in your book the most hospitable people you've encountered, and you write beautifully about the different people you met. You connected with a farmer, 
you can't not connect with people in Indonesia. They jump on you, as you said, out of curiosity and out of sheer joy of discovery of other peoples. And I think that comes down partly to the country's past as a, as a series of trading posts. But a farmer, how do you get into a farmer's life? Well, you're walking through the paddy fields and you hear this, you think, what kind of a noise is that? And it's rattling of cans. So the farmers have built these systems where they have a bunch of old tin cans filled with rocks hanging off bamboo poles, which they can tug simultaneously by pulling on a string to scare the birds. And so you realize that this is a huge amount of effort. You're in the rice field anyway, so you start rattling cans. And the next thing you know, you're staying with their family for two weeks. It, it happens all the time. Now, are these rented or just you're a guest? Because I stayed in Losman. Losman is an established kind of bed and breakfast system in the countryside, isn't it? Yeah. No, th- no, this is just... Just you're part of the family. Yeah, part of the family. Yeah. Of course, you know, I always leave a contribution yeah. and you know, obviously as it's polite to do that. But no, this is genuinely... Oh, we've never had a foreigner staying wow. before. That will be interesting, you know. How about nomads? You encountered nomads in Indonesia. The nomad populations are, uh, we're talking about hunter-gatherers in the forests, and those populations are shrinking very, Mm -hmm. very rapidly. There are very few left, partly because the forests are shrinking so rapidly. And yet, and yet, those that still exist have an amazing life. So we, um, one of the gentlemen from the nomadic tribes, we went out hunting for dinner, and we went frog hunting in the river. And he was... (laughs) Meshach was um, hunting frogs with the backside of a machete, so using the handle of a machete, holding the blade and thumping them over the head with the handle of his machete. You know, I want to stress, you don't need a special permission or a, a guide or a license to do this. Anybody with an adventurous spirit can go to Indonesia and have the experiences you're having if they're willing to get out there and meet people. Wouldn't you say that's true? It's it's not risky? It... I, I would say that true. I, I would say you need a few words of Indonesian. It's, uh-huh. uh, it's a relatively easy language to learn um, and very well worth the effort. And a very few words go a very long way. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Elizabeth Pisani. Her book's called Indonesia, etc. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. And Dennis is calling in from Juneau up in Alaska. Dennis, thanks for your call. Hi. Actually, I was curious. I was uh, interested in gamelan music. And then I saw a documentary on public TV about something called the Water Temple Festival. I was wondering if those still exist and if it's possible to go see those. Gamelan is definitely very, very much alive and well. And there are various festivals, particularly in central Java uh, and in Bali, that concentrate on Gamelan. But almost certainly the answer is is yes, and I would encourage you to go and explore. You know, Ubud in, in the center of Bali has Gamelan concerts for the visitors, and I found them just to be fascinating. Oh, I thank you. So the majority of the people in Indonesia are Muslim. We're talking a couple hundred million people, uh, but generally people are committed to the notion of separation of mosque and state, and modern Indonesia is a pluralistic uh, secular uh, democracy. Uh, Yes, much more than separation of of mosque and state. They're committed to the idea of freedom of religion. You've got to have a religion, but as long as you are, you know, a good God-abiding people, no one really cares who your God is. If you had two weeks and you wanted a, a dose of three different or four different areas, what would you do for a first look at Indonesia? 
I think it's hard to avoid Java as a first look because it's such an important influence on the culture of the rest of the country and it's extremely beautiful and it's also the easiest traveling because there's mm-hmm. uh, very good infrastructure and large numbers of tourist facilities and, and people who speak English. I would encourage people to head east slightly, so beyond Bali to maybe Flores Island, which has more diversity both geographically and culturally, but is still not so far off the beaten path that you would find yourself in in difficulties. For instance, you could fly into Jakarta. You'd probably want to go to Jogjakarta just for the ancient site, and from there you could actually fly over to Bali, do Bali and finish with Flores. Would that be two exciting weeks? That would be two very packed weeks. Yeah. Yeah, whatever whatever you expect to do, in general, halve it, unless someone's organizing it very well for you. Yeah. One of the most beautiful ways, if you can afford to, um, to be introduced to Indonesia is on a liveaboard boat. So some of the old Bugis uh, sailing schooners have been refitted as sort of luxury cruises. And you can go from Bali eastwards through the Komodo National Park and to the eastern reaches of Flores on, on those boats. And that's a very beautiful and very comfortable way to, to be introduced. And I, I would imagine it's nice to know a few of the polite words in Bahasa Indonesia. That's the language, right? Bahasa Indonesia? That's correct. Terima kasih is thank you, and selamat jalan literally means have a good journey. Elizabeth Pisani, thank you so much, and best wishes with your book, Indonesia, etc. Thank you. Terima kasih, Pak. We have web links to Elizabeth Pisani's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll explore the smaller towns of the Czech Republic in a bit. But first, a prominent Italian journalist has been thinking about what it really means to be Italian. It's Travel with Rick Steves. America's long-standing interest in Italy is rooted in both fascination and skepticism. We love the food, the music, fashion, and of course, vacationing there. The Italian's way of being is, to us, mystical, alluring, and imperfect all at once. We just can't get enough of it. Journalist Beppe Severnini has been a keen observer of his country for decades, from his position as an editor and columnist for Italy's largest daily newspaper in Milan. In his book, Italian Lessons, 50 Things We Know About Life Now, Beppe offers insight into the Italian mind and spirit after living through the pandemic and how Italians cope with and overcome uncertainty. Beppe, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Rick. Here I am. Yeah, you know, I remember when COVID was just hitting the scene and Italy seemed to be really hit hard. It seems in Europe, each society dealt with the pandemic differently. When, when you look back on it, how did being Italian impact the way your society lived through and, and survived those difficult years? Well, let's say the first year, 2020, uh, I was surprised and proud. Italy reacted in a brave um, collective way, which is very important in a, in a crisis, but the pandemic is something that no one has experienced. My father had. My father was born in 1917 and he knew the Spanish flu, but we, we didn't know what that was, you know, a pandemic. So Italy reacted in a way, and in a way, all the Italian networks, the small towns are working, uh, families are working, groups of friends, cafe, the, so people are talking to each other, more than in other parts of Europe. 
then something switched. 2021 was different. Uh, all the, the, the old habits of quarreling and discussing and shall we get vaccinated or not, and so on and so forth. But I want to say, and I'll stop here, Eric, that uh, Italian Lessons, I started writing during the pandemic, but it's not a book about the pandemic. It's a book about things that we do well. And the pandemic helped me to understand some of them. But most of them, the 50 things we do really well in Italy, the book is about them, they, they have nothing to do with the pandemic. Yeah, and as I was reading through your Italian Lessons book, it occurred to me that the piazza, where Italy comes together, is, is so integral to being Italian. And the piazza was not possible during the lockdown when people couldn't go out. Did you find that it was um, a particular challenge for Italy as a society to cope if you didn't have that opportunity to come together in the piazza? It's like you had to, you were suddenly, you lost one of your major advantages was this magic of the piazza. The piazza and the living together. Uh, we suffer psychologically more. Not only the, the, the virus, COVID struck here after China, it came to Italy. And of all places, exactly where I live, the southern part of Lombardy. So not only we suffer for that, but the whole of Italy, because of the lockdown that had to be introduced, we suffered because talking to each other, being each other, sort of touching each other, hugging each other is so much part of our life that being you know, prevented, it was not possible. It was unsafe to do that. And there was a real, an extra suffering. I know, Rick, your Scandinavian background, your Norwegian background. I'm not saying that in Norway or Scandinavia they didn't suffer, but in fact, people have less that sort of tendency to stay together, spend time together, hugging, yeah. talking, and integrating. No, for, for Scandinavians, it was almost a blessing. We didn't have to be with I couldn't people. say that. I couldn't <laughs> say that. But I know your background and, your, uh, and so I, I brought that up. Yes, and you know... Right now, we have this situation all over the the world where people who go to work uh, are working from home. And I, I would imagine that's a bigger adjustment in Italy. In the workplace, just like the piazza, you need to be together. Is there a discussion in Italy about this hybrid where people are telecommuting versus going to the office? Or in Italy, is there more of a demand to have people together in the office? Well, first of all, uh, Rick, let me tell you, you probably know this, but our listeners may not, that in Italy, uh, remote working from home or remote working is called smart working in English. I don't know why smart working, who knows? But the smart working has kind of not gone out of fashion, but many employers, including my newspaper, are insisting that people go back to work. Uh, some of them... Yesterday, there was actually the, the man who reads my book in America. It's called Eduardo Ballerini. He's a super narrator and, and an actor. And Eduardo was telling me, and his wife works for the New York Times, and we were discussing just this yesterday in my country house about the fact that Americans, many employers ask you, are discussing, are you sure we want everybody away? In Italy, somehow people sort of flocked back almost voluntarily, let's put it this yeah. way. Well, Italians like the energy. I know when, when I choose a hotel room in Italy, they ask me, would I like a room, a quiet room on the back or would I like a noisy room on the front? Uh, they remind me Italians prefer the noisy room on the front. I prefer the quiet room on the back, but Italians will pay more to be close to the energy in the street, even if it means losing some sleep. 
Do you know that, in fact, I I almost always ask for a room on the street because I like <laughs> the, the sound of, of life outside, if it's not too much, because I'm getting older, so if it's too yeah. much, it's too much. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Beppe Severnini. He's an Italian journalist, columnist, and essayist. And Beppe's written a number of fascinating books. He wrote La Bella Figura, A Field Guide to the Italian Mind. He wrote Off the Rails, A Train Trip Through Life, and a book called Ciao America, An Italian Discovers the U.S. Today we're discussing his latest book, written after living through the pandemic. It's called Italian Lessons, 50 Things We Know About Life Now. Hey, Beppe, I love this idea in Italy of bella chaos. Uh, we, we say chaos. In Italy, they say beautiful chaos. And in spite of the chaos, Italy seems to function quite well. And you even wrote in your book, no Italian would be willing to admit what I'm about to say without adding a litany of complaints and grievances. But the fact does remain, we live very nicely in Italy. So the chaos is part of that mix, isn't it? Yes. When it's too much, again, like the noise on the, in the street is too much. But we sort of, we are built, and in a way, the chaotic, the life in Italy, the business, the history of Italy has been chaotic. So we are used to an element of chaos, as you say. So we are sort of, it's it's built into our characters, I guess. If it's too quiet, we get, we we worry. No, yes, we love being with other people, and if they're a little noisy, even better. (laughs) I like the way your book has 50 bite-sized little chapters about lessons of life and how we can learn, really, from the Italian love of life. I, I was fascinated by the little chapter about Italians have fun without getting filthy drunk. And uh, you mentioned your father, who lived to be nearly 100 years old, believed that water with a meal created internal rust. I like that. You really want to have wine with your meal, don't you? Yes, he had a glass of wine, lunch and dinner, and he lived to be 100. Of course, he had plenty of water during the day, after his meal, but not while he was having uh, his food. That's one thing I'm a little I'm a little Italian about in spite of my Norwegian background. I don't want to drink for my thirst at my dinner. I want to have a drink that complements what I'm eating. There's another dimension of um, drinking in Italy, which is the aperitivo culture and the spritz culture, and you commented on that. It is interesting how young people, um, they just love to have a, a, a spritz and a little happy hour. The Prosecco is everywhere. Yes, uh, originally that piece, uh, I first wrote a column for the New York Times, and that was originally the the, the idea about the aperitivo and what it actually means. It, it's a ritual. It's part of our living together. And I, I recommend my travelers to be sure to factor that into your sightseeing. I don't care how many museums you want to see. Take an hour in the square and have a spritz and be there as the sun goes down and be part of the community. It's a beautiful opportunity Absolutely, for Absolutely, Rick. And if I may, tell your readers and listeners, not only do that, but when you're sitting in a beautiful Italian cafe and you have an aperitivo, you could be a glass of vino bianco, white wine, or a spritz or whatever you want, uh, don't look at your phones, look at the people. Because the phones <laughs> is going to be with you when you go back. And when <laughs> at night, but that hour, just leave the phone alone. Watch the word in front of you. And Americans should remember that we're a window on a fascinating land for Italians. Italians, you'll see, out have an aperitivo. They speak some English. 
So be bold. Buy somebody a drink. It'll cost you five bucks. And uh, have that tap into that aperitivo, that happy hour before dinner culture. Of course, Rick, if I may, if our listeners have a lot of money, but I mean really a lot of money, they could hire the Colosseum and do like Elon Musk, uh, Zuckerberg, and clash and fight each other. It's a little <laughs> expensive, but if you really have a lot of money and you say, okay, aperitivo is not enough. No, I'm joking. Don't okay, do no, that. No, yeah. I don't think okay. they'll do that. <laughs> I'm the budget traveler. I, I, I say the best 20 bucks I ever spent was buying four students a spritz in Verona and a beautiful square. I was their best friend. We all had this beautiful spritz, and I had four buddies to talk to me and get me part of the scene, and I learned all about student life in that beautiful town of Romeo and Juliet. Beppe Severnini is helping us view life through an Italian lens right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's joining us from his home studio in Crema, outside Milan. Beppe is an editor and columnist at Italy's largest circulation daily newspaper in Milan. Among his books is the international bestseller Ciao America, An Italian Discovers the U.S. His latest looks at the Italian character as seen early on during the pandemic lockdowns of 2020. It's called Italian Lessons, 50 Things We Know About Life Now. And, Beppe, one thing I wanted to talk about was the bureaucracy, the corruption, the Berlusconi kind of culture. And I remember somebody told me a lot of parents only aspire for their child to get a job in the government so that they can be solid and untouchable in their paycheck. Um, you know, this would, that disheartened me that people would just feel like, there's nothing I can do except try not to be fired. I can get into the government and, and, and be part of the system where I don't need to produce anything and I'll always be on the payroll. What are your thoughts about uh, the sort of the work ethic in Italy and, and all of the corruption that happens um, up in, in fancy quarters of, of the government and in, in corporate life? Well, corruption is everywhere. I'm a journalist, not only a writer and a travel writer. So I've been writing about uh, corruption, about things that don't quite work, about obnoxious people all over the place, all over the world. You know, I was a correspondent, not only Washington DC, in London, but in Moscow. So I've, I've been in China, I've been everywhere, and I've seen there are good people, bad people everywhere. It's not that the, the, the center of the, the word corruption is Italy. It's not true. It would be ludicrous. Right. No. no but of true. course, we have we have bad people and we have, we have organized crime in at least three regions, far too much. But I think that you know, I'm an optimist. Yeah. And so I think things are a little better now because at least people are confronting it, especially in those young people in Sicily won't accept situation that their parents and grandfather did accept with the mafia, yeah. for instance, yeah. which is really good news. But, you know, I was I, I guess even more than corruption, what, what is interesting to me is the bureaucracy. The bureaucracy just seems to be non-productive to me. And I would think people would reach a point where they would just say, enough of this craziness. Let's cut out the bureaucracy so we can get something done. Yes. And the, the problem is that bureaucracy, I mean, the law is there to, to make a better society, not to sort of create obstacles for honest people. And uh, there are people that are not honest and they say, okay, let's cut the red tape. Let's do things my way simply because they want to do things their illegal way. And that's a problem. But it is true that I could give you a hundred examples. I promise I won't do it now uh, about life, buying a house, selling a, a plot of land, uh, whatever your pensions. We probably take twice as much in terms of time and energy and, yeah. and, and stress than we should. But again, 
What's the I'm word for stamp? What, what's the word for stamp? You got to get a stamp on things. Timbro. 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 You got you to go get that stamp. Everywhere, just run over here and get a stamp. Go out to the post box, get a stamp. Come no, back let, to this well, office. don't forget, Rick, that, that now <laughs> lots of things are done online in Italy too. Like okay, that's many, ding, ding. many, Good. many, 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 many are changing. And that's a problem for people in the 80s and late 70s and 80s and 90s. That's a real problem. I think everywhere. You know, I, I remember you wrote about how on a train ride across Europe you had a bobblehead of um, Donald Trump that you put out just so people would talk to you. And uh, I think you have an appetite for talking about politics. We're always thinking about the base. Trump's, they call it the base, you know. Berlusconi had a base. What, what, how do you describe Berlusconi's base? Because when you look at Berlusconi from a distance, you just wonder, how could people vote for this man again and again in Italy? But he must have had a durable base. Who was it? Well, I could ask you the same thing about Donald Trump. He seems to have a base of people that... that uh, There's a lot of parallels between yeah, Berlusconi but and to Trump. Be, let, can I be honest? I mean, I wrote a book about Berlusconi. You mentioned my books in America, but there is one called Mamma Mia, Berlusconi Explained for Posterity and Friends Abroad. It was published 10 years ago, and now it's been reprinted in Italy with the new, because Berlusconi, as you know, passed away. And I was, I've been studying Berlusconi and what happened to how, how skilled he was to take advantage of certain weaknesses in people's attitude. He was the acquitter in chief. He absolved the, of us, of our sins, even ah. before we committed them. It was a masterpiece. But compared to Donald Trump, Berlusconi, and I'm not a friend of Berlusconi, I have been extremely critical for 30 years, trust me, Compared to Donald Trump, Silvio Berlusconi is Winston Churchill because he was faithful to Europe, to NATO, to international. He was never, never created those problems. Trump, it's a worry not only for you, but for NATO, for the European Union. You know, what is going to happen in Ukraine if Trump gets reelected, ba ba bum. With Berlusconi, we wouldn't have that. He was far too friendly with Putin. Yes, so Churchill mm. was not friendly with Stalin. Berlusconi may be gone, but does his base live on? And, and how is that being uh, uh, capitalized on by today's politicians? No, uh, our Prime Minister, Giorgio Meloni, uh, she comes from the far right. But the moment she stepped into power, she realized she had to deal with uh, and live with the European Union, with NATO, and she completely changed her tune. I've been telling her and her minister more than once, you change your mind. Good. And they said, we never change our mind. Yes, they did change their mind, but uh, I'd never voted for them. But I have to say that they, in a way, inherited Berlusconi's vote and uh, and mood. But that kind of, I mean, the, the people that were passionate about Berlusconi are getting older. Some of them passed away. Some of them are really old. So if you want to talk Berlusconi, you have to look back. Come into Italy and try and see. Let's see mm. what Berlusconi the Berlusconi sort of signs around, you won't find very much. Wow, that's very, you know, we can learn from that history. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Beppe Severnini. His book is Italian Lessons, 50 Things We Know About Life Today. Beppe, clearly you've had an interest in comparing America and Italy. What can we learn from each other? Can you sum it up just as a sort of a conclusion for our discussion? What can Italy best learn from America and what can America learn from Italy? Well, Italy can learn from America optimism, the ability of bouncing back, not giving up, and you know, after disappointment, you bounce back no matter what. 
I'm convinced that deep down, some Americans think that death is an optional. I think it's great, great attitude. What you can learn from us, uh, many things. Let's just say one, which is number 50 on my list of 50 things we know about life now. In Italy, we smile in spite of everything, which I think is a good thing to learn. You know, that's that's so fundamental to why I love Italy so much. You can have all sorts of good and bad, crazy stuff going on, and we're all in this together, aren't we? We can smile. Yes, absolutely. All right. Beppe Severnini, such a delight to talk with you. Thank you so much for the many fascinating books you've written, and best wishes with your work. Thank you. You'll find links to Beppe Severnini's work with the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Discover the lyrical beauty of the smaller towns and historical cities scattered across the Czech Republic. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425 or reach us by emailing radio at ricksteves.com. Few cities can match the old world charm of Prague. It's home to the largest castle in the world and its historic buildings escaped the bombs of the Second World War. But to escape the crowds of fellow tourists, there are plenty of charming smaller cities you can explore in the Czech Republic, and some are just an easy day trip from the capital. From medieval mining towns and thermal spas to the sobering remains of a Nazi concentration camp, let's venture beyond Prague into the smaller cities of the Czech Republic. Joining us is Czech tour guide Jana Hrankova and Cameron Hewitt. Cameron writes and researches many of the Rick Steves guidebooks to the region. Thanks for having us. Thank you for inviting me. Jana, when you think about the Czech Republic, first of all, we we know Czechoslovakia was Czech Republic and Slovakia, and they broke apart, and today we have Slovakia and Czech Republic. Within Czech Republic, what regions or small nations are there? We have three main uh, regions in Czech Republic. So it's uh, Bohemia, Moravia, and a little region of Silesia. The capital of, uh, of Bohemia is Prague, and that's uh, the, the biggest part of the country. Then we have Moravia, which is like the wine region mm-hmm. uh, over there. Most of the wine is produced in Moravia, and that's partly also connected with the culture. And, and Silesia over there, which is at the border with Poland. So Silesia is kind of just a little bit that spilled over from Poland, and it's mostly Moravia and Bohemia. Is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah. And what I find as a traveler, you really notice the difference when you cross from Bohemia to Moravia. Uh, Bohemia is kind of the, the core of the country. It's a lot more industrious. It's a lot more workaday. It's where Prague is. It's, it's where people are a little bit more focused, career-oriented. Then you cross a little bit to the east, and you're in Moravia, and it's sort of more relaxed, a little bit slower-paced, uh, rolling hills. You go from beer country around Prague and Bohemia into the wine country of Moravia. Um, people are more relaxed, more poetic. And there's yeah. always a, kind of like a competition between Prague and Brno, which is the capital oh, okay. of uh, Moravia. Okay. Now, you're a Bohemian, right? Well, I'm uh, I'm Czechoslovakian. So you're che- what does that mean? <laughs> because uh, my mom is from uh, Moravia. Uh-huh. My father, he's from Slovakia, but li- we live in Bohemia. Oh, so you're everything. So I'm, I'm not Czech. I'm not Slovak. I'm Czechoslovakian, so you, really. Czechoslovakia survives right <laughs> yes, here. Yes, right here. <laughs> now, but you, you live in the capital city, so you're sort of the big city girl. Yes, I am. Okay. Now, when your <laughs> friends who are really Bohemian, that's sort of, as Cameron was saying, the more workaday part of the country, when they look at Moravians, how do they see them? If you want to be very honest. <laughs> I don't think there is such a big really fight between, you know, these two regions. Right. So 
it's not really that the the people uh, feel anything bad about Moravia or or Bohemia. Okay. So they're just proud of their different regions. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But exactly. Now, but Cameron, there's a little confusion with Americans when we think Bohemia because it really isn't Bohemian, like uh, in the sense of I think the word Bohemia comes from the there's a bar, a pub in or a, like a tavern in Paris, the Boheme. Right. Up when we when, when we think bohemian in the sense of like a beatnik, right. we, we think of it's a very specific kind of a 1960s hippie kind yeah. of a, and that has uh, avant-garde thing. And no, that, that just coincidentally is associated with Bohemia, which is a cultural region of, of the Czech Republic. Now, we're, we're traveling, we're leaving Prague, and, and we're talking about great cities in the Czech Republic. If you were taking a, a five-day trip through the Czech Republic, not going to Prague, where would you go, Jana? Oh, I would recommend few cities around the country, which are really, really beautiful and full of history. I would definitely recommend, for example, Kutná Hora, Kutná Hora. which is very close to Prague, like mm-hmm. 45 minutes drive from Prague. And it's a beautiful medieval town. It used to be very famous and important for the city because we used to have a silver mines over there. So that was the economical income of the kingdom the, originally. The silver mines from Kutná Hora. Yeah. And we've got Randy on the line from Parsons, Kansas, who's got a question about Kutnahora. Randy, thanks for your call. Yes, my family is from Kutnahora several generations back, and we're going to be in Prague, and we're just wondering what would be the best way to side trip over to Kutnahora. From Prague, what's the best way to get to Kutnahora? Well, you can either rent a car and nicely drive over there, or you can also take a bus to Kutnahora and, mm-hmm. and enjoy a whole day over there and seeing beautiful historical medieval uh, houses over there. You can even visit uh, the silver mines. Uh, the, some of the tunnels are open to public. And another important part of uh, the, the Kutnahora uh, neighborhood is uh, the Bone Chapel over now, there. This Bone Chapel is incredible. Talk about the Bone Chapel in Kutnahora. According to the legend, one monk uh, brought a, a piece of holy land to the Bone uh-huh. Chapel. And that's why the uh, cemetery became so famous. And a lot of people wanted to uh, be buried over there. But also because of the uh, later plaques, a lot of people were buried. We talk about 300,000 people being buried over there. And because the monks later on uh, didn't want to throw the bones away, they started to collect the bones and they uh, decorated the whole chapel with the human bones. So I've seen this and it is incredible. There are the bones of thousands of people decorating the walls and the ceilings. In fact, there's one chandelier that apparently is made with every bone from the human body. From the human body, exactly. if, If you like human bones, there's probably no more just incredibly visual place to go than the Bone Chapel at Kutnohora. And see the chandelier. Or there is also, for example, the, the coat of arms yeah. of the owner of the land, yeah. the Schwarzenberg made family. Of, made out of ribs and... Exactly, and, and, yeah. And, 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 yeah. You know, there's also... It's, to me, it's, it's interesting that theologically, the point is this is a church of both the living and the dead, and everybody will be together eventually. Yeah, it's, we, it's we will a, be your equal at the end. We will Doesn't be matter. your equal. Is that the phrase there or something? That's the theme of the place. Yeah, yeah. Does that give you some ideas, Randy? Yes. So we could just rent a car on our own or should we try to find like a car with a driver that could drive us there? Or what would be the best? I would just hop on the train or the bus. I went there by train. Okay. Jana's talking about going by bus. It's it's very easy. It's easy. Uh, you know, Either It's, it's yeah. like two medium-sized towns that are an hour apart just hop on the train. There's going to be Mm -hmm. hourly trains there. Yeah, definitely. 
All right. So have, I'll just pick up the train information. Thank sure. you for your help. Yeah, have fun there. Kootenahore is really an amazing place. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Czech Republic outside of Prague, and we're joined by two guides who are experts in the Czech Republic, Jana Hronkova and Cameron Hewitt. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Steve in Elgin, Illinois, emails us and he writes, I've been to the Czech Republic twice now and just loved Pilsen. I went today and stayed for three. We also went to Kutnohora, a fantastic small town with very interesting sites, silver mine, church with bones, and a festive town square. It's very inexpensive and the people were wonderful. Jana, what about Pilsen? I've not been to Pilsen and people seem to love Pilsen. You know, Steve went there one day and he stayed three. Uh, well, Pilsen is uh, the, the most popular city because of the Pilsner Orkwell, okay, because so of the, the beer. Czech beer. So you can nicely take a, a tour through the brewery, uh, see the whole process, how they make uh, make the Czech beer over there. So that would be the reason to go. Because Definitely. when you go to the Czech Republic, you've got to have the beer. I think it's, you could say it's among the it's, very it's best beer in Europe. Yeah. Cameron, somebody was telling me that after freedom, you know, the end of communism, there's a lot of immigrants from different places in the former Warsaw Act. But the Czechs didn't immigrate for work so much because they couldn't bear to leave the thought of leaving their their beer. That sounds right. Uh, the Czechs are passionate about their beer, and when they go, they go out for an evening of drinking, they always say that you don't switch beers; you you stick with the beer you started with. Oh, you uh, go from you can go from pub to pub. But go, you s- go from pub to pub, but you don't switch beers. Uh, okay. In one night, they say a man should stay true to one woman and one beer. That's that's another old Czech saying. Ah, uh, words to live by. That's why yeah. we still keep the the first position, you know, in the consumption of beer. So you, what do you we are mean crazy by that? You, crazy about beer. Yeah. Oh, you're the first, uh, the biggest consumers of beer. Yeah, exactly. Ray's on the phone from Merrill, Wisconsin. Ray, thanks for your call. We were in uh, Prague last October, and uh, we went to Lidice. Uh, are you familiar with that? I think so, but uh, Lidice. How do you pronounce that, Jana? Lidice. Lidice. Yeah. In the uh, Second World War, there was a general by name of Heydrich, a Nazi general, and he was he was cruel, and uh, basically they, they shot him, and um, the resistance did, and Hitler ordered the town wiped off the map, and... Mm. Uh, there is a memorial there to all the folks in the town. All the men 15 years and older were shot, and we went by the, the remains of the, of the uh, farmhouse where they were shot. Then in another area, there's uh, bronze stat- life-size statues of 82 children mm. that did not make it through the concentration camps, mm. and that was really sad. And as we were walking away, a group of high school children were walking up, and I asked if any spoke English. And a couple of them said they did. And I said, well, take a good look at this. Think about it and tell your wives and your, your husbands and your schoolmates and parents what happened here. Maybe it won't happen again. Because when we were in Prague, we asked several people about this. And people younger than 40 or so didn't even know about Leidici and, uh, and everything that happened there. And living in Wisconsin, Phillips, Wisconsin, is a sister city to Leidici. And... Um, we brought some information back, and we're going up to Phillips to uh, present this to the people that are are from their area. There's a few left that are actually from the World War II period. So. Wow, good for you, Ray. Jana, what is your understanding of uh, Lidice? Uh, well, Lidice, as Ray said, uh, was totally you know, destroyed. Like destroyed. Do, do most Czech people know about this? Well, most of them, they do. Just the problem with the young people. That uh, sometimes the they they forgot really like so the, not very the the history. In that. Yeah, exactly. But the beginning of um, 2012, there was a um, 
very moving exposition on uh, one square in Prague when they uh, constructed like a copy of a uh, concentration camp, oh. Mauthausen. And because those boys and men uh, that Ray was talking about, they were shooted over there. And it was a special exposition for the children to, to experience to help, yeah, that. To help the young people in Prague who yeah. are inclined to be more interested in pop culture exactly. to learn from their very difficult recent history. Ray, did you go to uh, Terezin? No, we, we didn't make it to Terezin. Now, Terezin uh, is, is a very powerful site also. It, it, I, I, I'm, I'm so with you, Ray, on reminding young people to understand the difficult, difficult challenges of the last century, and it's so easy for it to get buried in all of the pop concerns and so on. Cameron, talk about the value of going to Terezin. Uh, just in general, there's a lot of these poignant World War II sites, but yeah, in, in Czech Republic, Terezin concentration camps probably one of the most powerful, for sure. Um, this was a, they actually called it sort of a model concentration camp just outside Prague. And it's where they uh, interned uh, Jewish people and others, uh, victims of the Holocaust. But they kind of spiffed it up and made it look really pleasant. And this was where they brought in film crews and photographers to kind of show how wonderful these communities were that we were creating. It was kind of a show camp. Uh, And then as soon as the cameras left, these people endured some really awful treatments uh, and, and of course, had many victims. Uh, It's really poignant to go and and walk through there and, and think about the plight of these people. Ray, thank you so much for your call. Well, thank you, and thank you for all your work and uh, helping us travel. You bet. We'll talk to you soon, I hope. Bye now. Happy travels. We're exploring some of the most compelling historical sites in smaller cities that are worth a few extra days in the Czech Republic right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides are Jana Hrankova and Cameron Hewitt. Cameron, very quickly, uh, we don't. We, it's so hard to cover all of the uh, Czech Republic here, but what are some other towns that we've missed, just very quickly? In uh, kind of my favorite uh, town in the Czech Republic, outside Prague, uh, is a favorite of a lot of people, Chesky Krumlov. That literally means the Czech bend in the river, and it's a very aptly named town. Uh, it's basically this, this quaint little old town that's uh, lassoed almost 180 degrees by this river that winds all the way around the town itself. Uh, and then overlooking the town on the adjacent hillside is a beautiful castle with a very colorful tower. With one of two surviving Baroque theaters in Europe there, and you can tour it. It's an incredible experience. Right, these wonderful Baroque theaters where they, they still use the original equipment to make these old-fashioned sound effects like thunder and lightning and wind, and you can see how special effects would have worked back in the 17th century. And it's just an incredibly charming town, cobbled streets, great restaurants. Uh, you can take a canoe ride in the river. Uh, very relaxing. You know, Prague's a great city, but it's a big city, pretty intense. The nice thing about Chesky Krimov is it's just very relaxing. You know, I went all around Hungary looking for places really exciting other than Budapest and came up, in my opinion, kind of short. But going around the Czech Republic, I found lots of places that really spoke to me. Chesky Krumlov, like you talked about. Olomutz, I know Bruno is the, the capital of Moravia, right? But Olomutz, to me, was just an amazing undiscovered town. And it's a, there's a train, I think, connecting Prague and Olomutz. And it's a, it's a great city. It's sort of the second city. It's not size-wise, but importance and culturally, it's one of the second cities of Czech Republic. Olomouc. Uh, O-L-O-M-O-U-C. Yep, Olomutz. There's a great fast train that zips there from Prague. Uh, it's a university town. It has... Uh, like a lot of Czech towns, it has just a lot of personality. It's got one of the largest and most impressive plague columns anywhere in Central Europe, this giant towering column built by locals who are appreciative for having been spared the, the wrath of the plague. Um, there's a really funny little astronomical clock for people like me who are interested in the communist history. A lot of Czech towns and a lot of Central European towns in general have these uh, astronomical clocks that are decorated with statues of saints. Uh, this clock in particular, though, was renovated by the communists. So instead of saints, you've got statues of workers. And on the big dial, instead of the different saints' days, they've highlighted the birthdays of Lenin and Stalin and other communist bigwigs. 
Uh, so it's kind of an interesting communist twist on, on a very old Czech tradition. And, you know, even the train station in Olomouc has these wonderful murals from the, uh, you know, whistle-while-your-work days of the, the Soviet era. And then you see these big, sprawling apartment flats that are reminiscent of, you know, suburban Moscow. And then, of course, on the square, you've got the uh, the astronomical clock that, that doesn't celebrate St. Jude or St. Nicholas, but St. Uh, Joseph Stalin and, and St. Lenin. Uh, when we think about the Czech Republic also, we've got a, a Habsburg heritage and um, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the man made famous when he was assassinated in uh, Sarajevo in 1914, he had a castle where he hung out. He was sort of like m- maniacal, is that a word, about killing animals. He, he killed 300,000 animals they have records of, and it seems like that many trophies are decorating the walls of his castle at Konopista? Konopista Castle. Konopista so there's so much to see in the Czech Republic. Uh, Jana, if all of the tourists know the famous places to go, if you had a visitor to Prague and you wanted to take him into the countryside to really get an understanding of, of uh, modern Czech Republic, where would you take them for the sort of the cap of their vacation, for, for the, the most meaningful experience? Well, because I was born in uh, Moravia, I would take them to Trebič, which is my originally hometown, really. Uh-huh. And it's uh, out of Prague, uh, so it's not uh, so packed with crowds of people. And it's a very nice small town, and uh, they have an incredibly beautiful cathedral over there, and also a beautifully preserved uh, Jewish ghetto that oh, you can okay. you can visit. So Trebich. Trebicha. Trebicha. And Cameron, if we were going to be going to the Czech Republic and we wanted to get a a more well-rounded experience beyond Prague. What's one sort of often missed dimension of the Czech Republic that we should be sure to uh, experience? Um, as you said, there's just, it seems like great little towns are a dime a dozen in the Czech Republic. And I just discovered one a few years ago called Stromberg. It's this cute little town in Moravia, which is this sort of romantic eastern half of the country. Just a charming little square overlooked by a wooden castle tower up on a hill. Um, a couple of cute little restaurants, a little brew pub uh, in the corner of the square. Just a really nice, relaxing place to sit and get away from the crowds of Prague and enjoy the Czech countryside. And not a lot of tour buses there, I would imagine. Uh, none at all. Stromberg. 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 All right. Thank you both. Cameron and Jana, thanks for your help so we can better appreciate and enjoy the Czech Republic. Sometimes Travel with Rick Steves listeners get inspired to write a haiku poem about what they see and do in their travels. You can send us yours from a link on the radio page of our website at ricksteves.com radio. We might even read it on the show one day. Here's a few we thought you might enjoy. Jane Hellman of Floyd County, Virginia, sent us a pair of haiku from when she traveled to East Africa. Zambia bushland. Rainy season frogs so loud. I watch from my door. One more hostel bunk. Do I need earplugs tonight? Turn to my left. Ah. Eileen Patch of Endwell, New York, was inspired after seeing wildebeests and big cats in her travels. In Kenya, we saw the Big Five on safari. And weaver birds, too. And Catherine Hawks in Douglas, Georgia, paints a metaphor of Mozambique for us with this haiku. Africa like a ballerina on her toes between two oceans. 
Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Gretchen Strout read our listener travel haiku. Send us your own original haiku about your travel impressions. Details are at ricksteves.com slash radio. The Rick Steves Guidebooks are consistently the best-selling series of guides to Europe. That's because we lovingly update them in person and cut through all the superlatives to give you hard and smart opinions based on decades of experience. Find them at your favorite bookseller and at ricksteves.com.